Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. And it has not been a slow news week. If you're listening to a podcast about the business of media and tech and how they mash together, I don't need to tell you that AT&T is in the process of pretending it never paid more than $100 billion for the company formerly known as Time Warner. Uh, you probably also have heard that Amazon may or may not be buying an actual Hollywood studio, MGM. Uh, it's the home of James Bond, primarily. We're not going to talk about the Amazon MGM story yet because we're not really sure how it's going to play out. So we'll come back to that. We are going to talk about AT&T and Warner Media and Discovery and HBO briefly because I talked with James Andrew Miller, uh, who's a journalist who does these great oral histories of big American cultural institutions like ESPN, like SNL, like CAA, the talent agency. And he's in the process of writing a book about HBO. So this was a timely conversation since he has to rip up a big chunk of it and write a new end chapter, I guess. Uh, so we talked about that. We talked about what all of this might mean for HBO, the actual television programming entity that some 40 million people still really care a lot about. Uh, that is a good conversation. It's a short one. And then we also talked with Alan Yang, who's a really interesting guy. He's a screenwriter, a TV writer. For the purpose of this conversation, he's the co-creator of Master of None, the Netflix Aziz Ansari show. Uh, there's a new season of that out now. It's very different than the last season, last two seasons. We talked about how that's different, why it's different. Uh, we talked about the business of making television right now. And by the way, it's a very good business for, for Alan Yang specifically. And I think people like Alan Yang and it's, that's, it's a moment in time. It may not last. Um, but if you're someone like Alan Yang, if you're Alan Yang specifically, it's great right now. You have a lot of people who want to pay you a lot of money to make more or less whatever you want. And, you know, technology is a mixed bag, innovation is a mixed bag, but um, sometimes it creates lots of new opportunities. So we discussed all of that, plus some film school nerd stuff at the end. Um, I will confess I have never seen an Ingmar Bergman film. So when Alan Yang is talking about Ingmar Bergman, I'm just sort of nodding silently like I know what he's talking about. Since you are listening to this podcast, you probably have a feed. You may likely have a feed of this podcast, which means you know that I also talked to Ed Lee, my former Recode colleague and current New York Times reporter about the AT&T Discovery deal. Ed's super smart. Um, people said really liked listening to hear him. People like listening to hear him talk. Not me talk, me no talk good. Anyway, you might like that conversation as well. And on Friday, because it's been busy, I talked to Antonio Garcia Martinez, formerly an ad tech guy at Facebook, briefly uh, an ad tech guy at Apple until last week. Man, things move fast. Um, anyway, both of those conversations are in your feed. They are both worth your time, I, I would suggest, but it's your decision. It's a free podcast. Do what you like. Uh, okay, let's get into the conversation with Jim Miller now. I'm talking to Jim Miller, who has written definitive books, uh, definitive oral histories of SNL, ESPN, and the CAA Hollywood talent agency. He's in the midst of a book on HBO, which makes it a very timely conversation to have. Hi, Jim. How are you? Uh, I'm all right. I was having a little pity party for myself on Sunday because I was lounging around Sunday morning and and saw on Twitter that, oh my God, AT&T is going to sell off Warner Media, which is something we'd speculated about, but 
really didn't think was going to happen. Uh, and so I had to wreck my day. I had to spend my day reporting a story. But on the other hand, I wasn't working on a, a book for several years about HBO. What was your Sunday like when you when you got the news? Uh, it was like a ground war in Southeast Asia. Uh, it was, I mean, look, I, I mean, obviously you get, you get all the phone calls and then you have to start making calls and you have to start processing what this really means and separating some of the, um, you know, that fiction that started almost right away, um, including some of the, uh, correct reporting and incorrect reporting about what had actually happened way back when. So do you have to rip up a big chunk of the book and start again? Do you, is this, is this going to be an extra chapter? How do you think about sort of processing new news into a long-term project like this book, which is, I think, going to be out this year, maybe? Uh, I mean, at some point you just can't, I mean, my books run kind of long anyway, and there's 49 mm -hmm. years of HBO. And so at some point you just can't say to somebody uh, at the airport bookshop, hey, you want to pick up an 1,100-page book to get on your flight? Uh, you know, it, you kind of reach diminishing marginal returns. So I think that for everything that, at this point, I'm in a zero-sum world. So everything that gets added, I'm going to have to cut from someplace else. I'm telling you, man, this is one advantage of doing blogs and podcasts. You can just do iterative stuff as long as you want. You never have to go back and cut. Uh, were you were you surprised? Um, like, like I said, there'd been some speculation for a while that maybe AT&T had gotten in over its skis and, and didn't really know what they'd gotten bought. Did you ever think they'd go and do a full 180 and, and just push the thing back out again? Oh, sure. Sure. I mean, that's always been po possible. And I think, I mean, if you look at DirecTV and you look at, uh, the options out there, plus the need for cash. I mean, the one thing with AT&T is, you know, you have a gigantic dividend and it's sacrosanct and it's like feeding a monster. And so you have to keep that in mind. I think you also have in John Stanky, uh, you know, after he succeeded Randall, you have a new pair of eyes and you have a different way of uh, maybe approaching things, or at least the ecosystem has changed since, uh, Randall made certain decisions back then. And so you, you, have to, you have to be ready. Now, did I expect it to be David Zasloff and Discovery? Uh, I only wish that, that I, could have, uh, I could say yes. I didn't see that one coming. Yeah, I'm still very confused about the idea that John Stanky, who was the guy who did the deals, who his job was to do deals for Randall Stevenson, the former CEO of AT&T, now looks at what he bought and said, oh, no, that was a bad idea. We shouldn't have done it. Um, and I have yet to hear a plausible explanation of what changed his mind. Maybe we'll find out one day. But let's talk about some stuff we do know. We do know that this thing, uh, barring any regulatory problems, is going to be part of discovery. What do you think that, that an HBO is the thing you've been focused on? And, and again, like you said, it's not just this year, it's nearly 50 years of history. How do you think HBO, the product that tens of millions of people in the U.S. like a lot, will fare under this new ownership compared to AT&T? I think HBO, the core of HBO as we know it, in terms of like people turning on their television and watching HBO shows and HBO documentaries and other programming uh, that fit under the programming, uh, I think that's probably going to be the place that's going to be uh, affected the least. Uh, I, I mean, obviously, you have technological change, you have distribution change, you have managerial change. But I would say that if you really look at what's been going on at HBO, you had 
HBO Max for a while that was under Bob Greenblatt and Jason came in and everything else. And then, you know, Casey Bloys took over some of the Max responsibility. But if you really look at that programming group that Casey Bloys has been headed, heading for several years, he's got his group in place. That is a hardcore, we live and breathe HBO, not HBO Max, not anything else. I mean, they have to do things, but that is that group is intact. And to underscore this, Casey Bloys is the guy who was doing programming when Richard Plepler was there. And, and, and a lot of the focus on HBO and the brain drain at, at Warner Media in general, uh, we talk about Richard Plepler leaving and, and what a loss he is. And he's well-loved by by talent, he's certainly loved, well-loved by media reporters. Um, but the guy who was actually making the shows was Casey Bloys. He stayed, he continued to do that. And from what I understand, he's signed on for multiple years and, you know, that can always change, but he's supposed to be there for years to come. Yes. I mean, I think that uh, John Stanky made it clear that he was a Casey Bloys fan, and uh, I think that's well-deserved. I, I think that you're going to see a continuation. I, I mean, Casey has a plan, and they do short-range planning, but they also do long-term planning. And I think that he's been, since he got that job, he has been active in doing long-range planning. Now, if there is some sort of huge strategic shift that David and others who are going to be coming in are going to impose on him, then he'll do that. The only thing I would say is you have to make sure that you have the money to match the strategy. Because I do believe that, you know, we're probably days, weeks, or months ahead uh, uh, in front of an interview with Jason where he'll say, I just didn't have the money. I just, I just didn't have the money to do what they wanted me to do. Um, and I'm not saying that he's going to use that as an excuse, but I think you could make the case, given the ambitions and the strategy, um, was the money there? Now, John Stanky probably thought it was, and maybe he's right. But if they are going to change something in a fundamental way on what Casey has been doing up to now, then they just have to make sure he's armed with it, with the enough cash. Yeah, Jason Collar isn't the only one at Warner Media who didn't think there was enough money to go around. And I think maybe John Stanky came around to that that uh, point of view as well. So this will be a this is a this is a one year plus process of of getting this thing approved, and then they have to integrate it with Discovery and another set of um, uh, I assume layoffs and, and downsizing. Uh, if you're Disney, if you're Netflix, if you want to take advantage of this and you're competing against HBO, what do you do? I mean, look, I think the easy answer is you continue to do what you're doing in the sense that none of this really changes. If you're if you're a writer, director, creator, showrunner, whatever, and you, you know, you're like Willie Loman and you got your idea and you're going to be going to these places, it's not like HBO is not going to be open for business. They're going to be as aggressive as possible. Will they be able to be as aggressive as maybe necessary in some deals? No, we learned that with House of Cards. But the truth is that they're still going to be very, very active. They're going to be very aggressive. And they have their value proposition to these people. Is, look, we got a team that you know very well, and we've been doing well. Um, so I think that I'm not so sure that anything's going to really change. Well, that doesn't make a very good headline, Jim. We got to hype this thing up better than that. We got to well, no, put some catastrophic. We got to put some catastrophic headline on this thing, or no one's going to click. I mean, like if if HBO 
and the multiplex that goes along with HBO is like at 501 on your cable channel. Like 501 is going to be, you know, there's a there's a vision for what that channel, for what HBO is, is now, and it's going to be what it's going to be a year from now and two years from now. And if somebody comes in and decides to micromanage Casey Bloys and change the equation on him, then, you know, he may, I would think the guy's, highly employable elsewhere, might say no moss, or, you know, they'll let him go and continue to do what he's going to do. So I just mean in terms of the viewing public, you know. Mm-hmm. Yep. If uh, we've mentioned Richard Pepler a couple of times, there's a rumor floating around that Richard Pepler and David Zaslav are good buddies. Uh, any chance you think that Pepler comes back? He's currently employed by Apple. I, you know, I have not talked to Richard about that. Um, I know Richard and David, uh, of course they know each other. Richard, uh, Richard seems to know everyone. And uh, the, the question is, would they, you know, would they want to be in business with each other under these circumstances? I mean, Richard has his own, as you just alluded to, he's got his own gig now at Apple. He doesn't have to answer to anybody except obviously have Apple finance these things. But I'm not so sure whether that, that would happen. And I really can't. I haven't talked to uh, Richard about it. Maybe Richard will come tell us. All right, Jim Miller, you've been very generous with your time because you've got a book to write. It's out this fall, I believe. And, and hopefully when it's out, you'll come back to it and we'll spend more time talking about this deal and, and, and 50 years of HBO. Deal? Deal. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Jim Miller. I am looking forward to reading that book and having Jim Miller back to talk about that book. We're going to hear from Alan Yang in a minute. But first, a word from a sponsor. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., I'm with Alan Yang, who's made a whole lot of things for television and movies, and he's made the third season of Master of None, which you can watch on Netflix as soon as you're done listening to this podcast. Hi, Alan. How you doing, Peter? I'm all right. Thank you for, for making time. I just finished uh, watching all five episodes of your, your show, so it's fresh in my mind. I liked it. Thanks for making it. Oh, good. Thank you so much. It's it's a good start. It's better than, uh, uh, man, I hated it. Let's chat. <laughs> do, you, do you ever get that at the beginning? Of it? I, I don't like your project. Let's discuss it more. I think people try to be diplomatic and say, yeah, uh, yeah it was uh, interesting. Real, <laughs> no, real been, different. We've been lucky. Yeah, we've been lucky to get uh, a fairly decent reception on most of this stuff. So yeah, that's been good. I want to talk to you about that in a few minutes, but just because we're a show that talks about media and technology and business and where it's all going, um, and we're recording this a day after Time Warner, uh, sorry, after AT&T said it didn't want to own Time Warner anymore. And as we're talking, uh, Amazon is in the midst of maybe bidding for MGM. There's a lot going on. You have made television for a lot of different people. You've done it for NBC. You've done it for Netflix. You've done it for Amazon. I'm curious, as someone who's in the business, what you make of the swirl of stuff going around. Does it affect how you think about your next project? You know, it doesn't affect so much the creative aspect, but I think there is definitely a business aspect, especially as soon as you start creating shows and then maybe creating multiple shows if you're lucky enough to do that. Um, and man, I think we felt the the sort of tectonic plates shift underneath our feet just over the course of even my career, right? Which is, you know, started long ago, but not so long ago, right? I think when I started working on, say, Parks and Recreation, you know, 
Netflix was not a streamer. It was a DVD service. And, you know, a lot of these places didn't exist. And then, of course, you know, we started doing Master of None on Netflix. And Netflix was a nascent service. When we pitched to them, they had two shows. They had Orange is the New Black and House of Cards. And so a lot has changed. And then when you're talking about all these current places, you know, I think the latest development is obviously the sort of streaming wars. And, and it, it's it's unprecedented to me. I think there's a little bit of a land grab with a lot of these places just trying to get creative talent and locking it down. And I think you're going to see a lot of competition between these places. You know, it, it, so that's, that sounds that's good for you, right? As someone well, who makes stuff, who's in <laughs> demand, you do, I, I assume that you can, you know, shop your stuff to a lot of different places and, and get your price where you want it and, and get creative control when you want it. Is that, um, is, am I correct in guessing? Yeah, I think it's it's twofold. I think uh, what's been really great is uh, with the development of these streaming, you know, outlets. I think there's been a bit of a flourishing of creativity. I mean, if you look at TV now, what we call TV now versus TV five or ten years ago, there is a lot of different stuff. I mean, talk about the season of Master None you just watched. There's 20 minute episodes. There's 50 minute episodes. It's shot on film. It's kind of a different genre from previous seasons. It's a different lead. I mean, that is pretty pretty aggressive stuff creatively pretty ambitious and and i think uh, a lot of the competition is facilitating that and on top of that you know it's 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 all changing so fast i think it's good in a lot of ways and i've been fortunate enough in, in a second way which is um you know universal studios has been my home for a long time and they have allowed me to make shows at netflix at amazon at apple at nbc all of these different places um, and that's just really lucky. You know, that's not always the case. And, and who knows how long that'll be the case. But I feel fortunate enough to try to find the right homes for each of these shows. I've been asking people who do what you do this question for several years, which kind of indicates the answer. But do you feel like there is a sunset? You kind of alluded to this. Like there's a, this is a moment in time that you have X number of years where you could make weird stuff for Netflix and they'll say, yes, thank you. Make us more weird stuff. Um, and at some point that's going to close up where, you know, everyone's trying to consolidate. And part of the idea of consolidation is we want some of that leverage back. We want, and, and if you talk to some of the executives, at least off the record, they'll say, yeah, we think this goes on for a couple of years and eventually it kind of rationalizes. I would probably trust those executives because they're making the decisions and I'm not. But yeah, I, I think for, for artists and, and creatives, I think it's, try, yeah, absolutely trying to make what you can now. I mean, I, I think uh, having that freedom really leads to interesting stuff and then that goes for master that goes for little america that goes for forever that goes to tiger tail movie i made last year that you know that might not have been a, a commercial movie that you could have made you know five ten years ago and certainly by the way the, the the changing racial tides have affected that too right it's like i don't see people making minari 10 years ago or if they did mm -hmm. it was probably a micro budget movie and so i don't tend to think about it a lot in terms of when is this window going to close it's more like let's try to keep making stuff and and not only should it be creatively fulfilling for us, but obviously we want the audience to enjoy it, you know, and, and, and you can you can talk all you want about the ambition and stuff. But for instance, this season of Master None, we see it as a love story. You know, it's a love story between two individuals and it really explores that. And there's nothing more accessible than that. You know, you alluded to this, the changing racial tides. Um, so you're successful. You have in a lot of ways, you have the standard TV resume, right? You went to Harvard, you wrote for the Lampoon, you got into comedy writing and, and worked your way up. On the other hand, don't speak to a lot of Asian American uh, television creators. And I think you were you and Aziz were the first Asian Americans to win an Emmy uh, a couple of years ago for Masters of None. How much have you thought about the fact that you don't look like the other people in the writer's room or traditionally um, and, and what that what that means and maybe how that's changing? 
it's I think the awareness has only increased over time. And I think that's a good thing in general. You know, I, I when I look back now, it's like, wow, I didn't work with another Asian American writer until we had our own show <laughs> and we hired some, you know, that's and that's no slight on the people I worked with and worked for. It was just a different time. You know, it was a different time. And and by the way, the supply was pretty low, right? There was a time when I felt like I knew every other Asian American television writer in the world. Like I really felt that way. It's like, yeah, it's me and Ryan and Danny and a couple other people, right? It's like that literally was it for a while. Now I think for the better, it's really changed. And and, and for instance, you know, we're working on a new show with my Rudolph uh, over at Apple and you know, we were really, really conscious when we hired the writing staff. We want the staff to reflect the cast, to reflect America, to reflect, you know, the reality of the world we're out there. And and so I think, I hope creators are thinking of that when they hire their cast, their crews, their their writing staffs. And it's changed. It's definitely changed over time. And, and, and we're more aware of it. And by the way, we've gotten the freedom to make more interesting stuff. I mean, we just have it. it no, none of these shows would have been greenlit before. They just wouldn't. And I, I, I just I just know that in my heart. Do you think that's a business decision or or a sort of cosmetic thing? Like, we're going to make some shows that have some non-white characters just so we get a little less grief and we can say, look, we made some stuff. Now now let us go back to business. Well, I think I think calling it a, a cosmetic decision is, is probably damning it in some ways, but it may not be completely untrue. I think there's probably a kernel of truth in you saying that, but I also think there's a positive business aspect because of these incredibly underserved audiences. You know, I obviously I'm all for increased Asian representation, increased more varied black representation. I also look at, you know, look at the Latino population and it's just incredibly underserved, incredibly underserved if you look at the numbers. So there's a way to go. You know, I, I, I was on a panel for Netflix recently just looking at this study that that the Annenberg group did on on, right. on diversity and, and on Netflix and it's gotten better but obviously there's a way to go there are ways to go I talked to Kent Powers who who wrote and, and co-directed uh, soul uh, late last year he was originally brought into that Pixar project because they wanted a black person in the room they basically said that and he was fine doing that have you ever been in the position where they said we wanted an Asian American perspective Alan could you provide <laughs> that for us by, uh, by the way I know Kent I love him he's so talented and yeah, yeah. He, we, I used to work I, with him back in the day uh, oh great yeah he and I right. traded some great stories you know about stuff we've worked on and um you know it, it's it, Certainly, I think there are projects where they're looking for an Asian American perspective, and I don't fault them, right? I, I don't fault them. And in fact, good, in some ways, good, right? Let's say there's a big movie with an Asian American lead or an Asian American cast. I think it probably is smart for you to meet with Asian American directors and Asian American writers. I think, you know, the time of doing that and just having an all white behind the scenes crew is is over in, in a great way. I think that's you know, that's very important. Um, you know, as far as like, oh, has it ever felt like tokenizing or sort of patronizing? For me, not yet. I think I've been lucky in that sense. I'm sure it happens all the time to other people and it's not a great feeling. But for me, I feel, I certainly feel fortunate enough in my career to have been approached with things that I, that I feel like, oh, they value me for my experience, for whatever modicum or scintilla of talent I may have and, and, and my perspective on that project. But yeah, I, I, I see the reasoning and I see that there's definitely a sort of, okay, is there a political aspect to hiring these people? But, but by the way, maybe we can take advantage, you know, maybe we can take advantage and Hey, we make this great. You know, I look at what John Chu did with crazy rich Asians and it's like, okay, well he took this book and he made a great movie and, and it did well. And like, okay, great. So that only helps. Right. So let's talk about master of none. 
Um, this is the third season. Um, I did even call, I think you say presented by Master of None. Yeah, call Master of None presents moments. Presents. Well, that's, by the way, Peter, that that is a, a little backdoor we have been thinking about since season one. If you look at season one, each episode, when the opening credits roll, it says Master of None presents, and then the episode title, Parents or whatever, right? And so in the back of our mind, we had always thought, you know, if we want to branch out, if we want to tackle some other topics, other characters, we can always have that in our back pocket, Master of None presents. So we finally did it this season. So it starts off, the first season is Aziz Ansari hanging out in New York, dating people, eating at cool restaurants. Very fun. <laughs> and then there's more of that in season two, but he also goes to Italy and, and comes back. And then you guys have said quite vocally, we're not going to do more of this unless there's something else to say, if, if Aziz has something else to say. So you go in a completely different direction. The Netflix people have asked me not to spoil it, but we can say Aziz is not the star of this. He's barely in it. It's a love story between Lena Waithe and Naomi, pronounce her last name for me. Naomi Aki, yeah. Naomi Aki, two black women. Mm-hmm. How did you get to that point? Uh, you know, uh, we get asked this question a lot because it, it's, sure. it's a departure, certainly, for this season. And, you know, the honest answer is it... it <laughs> We started talking about this years ago, like years and years ago. You know, season one, we had an episode called Mornings, uh, which was about Dev's character and Rachel's character and, and their kind of relationship and all these mornings they had together. And we're like, you know, what would be interesting is if we were able to do this with the other characters in the show. Like, what, what would Denise's mornings look like? And so that sort of evolved naturally into season two, where we put more of a spotlight on Denise's character in the Thanksgiving episode. And then, like you said... We were kind of like, look, do we want to do another season of a funny guy in New York, like trying to be an actor and, and eating at fun restaurants? It's like because I would, is... wa- I would watch that. <laughs> oh yeah, for sure. I mean, it, it it was it would it's definitely a thing that we could have done, but I don't know. For us, it's kind of always been about challenging ourselves and doing something that we hadn't done before and we hadn't seen before. And and so that's kind of been the watchword of the show. And that's what we did season one. You know, we felt like, well, we haven't seen this show. Like it hasn't existed in this sense, and we haven't seen a show that kind of tackles a different topic every episode and has a different title and all that stuff. And so season three, we were like, you know, again, years back, this was when I was working on Tiger Tales, so this must be two, three years ago, we started talking about, oh, what if it's kind of more of a Denise season? And what if it's, you know, a love story? And, and then we started talking about the different trials and tribulations that Denise's character might go through. And at certain points we debated, we were like, well, we could make this about Dev and, and a romantic interest of his, but we just kept coming back to like, I feel like we've seen that more. We've just seen that way, 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 way more times. You know, go back as far as Ingmar Bergman, or you go back, you know, you look at Noel Baumbach stuff, you go back, you know, and you see like these deep explorations of relationships and it tends to be a straight white couple, you know, not, you know, obviously there's international films that aren't, but for us as American human beings in 2021, it just felt more exciting to do it with these characters. And so, of course, then we brought in Lena into the writing process because uh, she's an incredible writer. And, of course, it's centered on her character. Um, and it just started feeling much fresher and more interesting to us. So in between season two and season three, Aziz obviously goes through stuff. He is he is accused of, I guess, sexual assault. Um, he pretty much goes quiet for some period of time. He does a Netflix special where he kind of apologizes. How much of, of the fact that his public persona had changed and that he was under fire, did that affect your decision to put him in or not put him in the show? Not really, because we had been talking about the idea before all that happened, which is really crazy to think about. But, you know, that's that's what we, we you know, that's actually what happened. So we kept talking about it. And obviously, look, he and I talked about the whole situation that happened to him. And, uh, you know, it's I think it's his story to tell and not mine. But ultimately, with the show, you know, we just felt like 
this is just more modern. This felt like a current story using these classic film techniques. And ultimately, if you look back at seasons one and two, that's a lot of what we were trying to do with those seasons as well. You know, if you look back at seasons one, it's like, okay, well, what if there were kind of a 70s movie feel, but we were using it with an Indian guy in New York. And then in, and then in you know, episode, season two, it was like, okay, well, this is a De Sica movie. This is Italian neorealism, but it's Aziz and a little Italian boy <laughs> instead, of, instead of Bicycle Thieves, right? And so season three, it was like, well, what if you were doing you know, scenes from a marriage or, or, or some of those classic movies, but with a queer black couple in 2021. And to us, that just, again, struck us as, you know, just more interesting. And, and when we started watching the footage, it was like, okay, this was proof of concept. Like it really started working. When you go back to Netflix, they're like, look, anything you want to do, whenever you're ready, you let us know. Come, and you and go, we're ready. We got a pitch for you. And you go, here's the deal. It's season three and Aziz is barely in it. And also it's not that funny. There's not, there's, there's humor, <laughs> but it's, it's a, it's a pretty serious love story. Um, how do you feel about that Netflix? What was the reaction? Uh, this is where I got to thank the people at Netflix and Universal for being supportive. <laughs> I wish I could tell you, man, it was like a crazy battle and like we won and all this stuff. It was like, okay, let's look at the scripts and let's talk about it. Like, oh, this is interesting. And and again, I, I, I have to, again, appreciate and feel grateful for their trust in us. I think we were like, look, this is a different tone, but we feel like it's a very accessible story. You know, it's two people in love and it's, there's, there's positive moments, there's moments of levity and there's moments of, where, where there are more trials between the two of them. And um, there was never really any pushback. So shout out to Ted and Bella and Andy over at Netflix and, you know, Andy is just sort of boots on the ground guy. And, you know, he just has impeccable taste and he knows all these films that we're talking about. And he's, he can call out the next one we're talking, we're, we're thinking of, he's like, okay, I get it. I get what this is. And, you know, as we started turning in the scripts and then the cuts, I think they were happy because, you know, ultimately I think you care about the characters and that's ultimately our goal in, in any sort of film or TV show. You know, it's like, are you invested in the story? You mentioned Bella Bajaria, who's, who's the new head of content, the old head of content with Cindy Holland. Did she leave sort of while you, while this was in progress? Like, did she leave in between you starting season three? And, and yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of the timeline now. Again, like things move so fast that I'm like, oh, yeah, Bella's been there for a while. But um, yeah, I guess it was somewhat in the middle. Um, you know, the, the, fortunately for us, you know, we always had a good relationship with Cindy. And then Bella, you know, we've known for years. Bella was the head of Universal. And again, as I mm -hmm. said, I've been at Universal for so long. So you know, when Bella started working there, I texted Bella and said, congratulations, like we're work we're still working together. Basically, we worked together in Master before. Bella, ironically, was in the pitch when we first sold Master None to Ted. So really? she was on the Universal side. She sat okay. with me and Aziz as we pitched it. So, you know, it's always been family. And like, you know, Bella has always sort of, you know, kept tabs on us. So, so it's been a, a smooth transition. So this is one of the first things that I've seen. We're not out of COVID, but we're nearing the end of it. It's one of the first things I've seen that's new. Um, I'm assuming that you had to stop and start production were you making this during the pandemic i'm assuming the answer is yes we did we we unfortunately you know we were about to shoot it last spring um and i was over in the uk and we were about to shoot this we were location scouting and then on march 10th we were like yeah we're close we're tech scouting whatever and then on march 11th you know uh rudy gobert got covid the nba got shut down tom Hanks got covid it was like oh this is a this is a really big deal so i flew back home um to la and uh, yeah, so we picked up again last fall, last winter, and um, look, COVID shooting is not fun. It's not did you fun. Did you shoot it in the UK? Or, we or, shot it in the UK. Yeah, that's well, a little it, Easter it's, egg. It's, yeah, for it's people set, who haven't seen it, it's set in upstate New York. So it's that, set in upstate <laughs> New York and in Brooklyn. Okay, yeah, was, <laughs> yeah. So hey, there we go. We fooled you. But uh, and, and by the way, the other little nugget is, um, you know, for those of you who haven't seen the show yet, uh, there's 
you know, a house that features really prominently as a cabin. And obviously we shot the exteriors in a beautiful sort of farmland area. Um, but the house is, uh, is, is built by, by our production designer, Amy Williams, who's been with us it's in season one. A, it's a and gorgeous it's, house. It's I, was, I was going to look it up and see yeah, if I can Airbnb exactly. it. Every, everyone's like, wow, I want to go to upstate New York. I want to visit the house. I'm like, I got news for you. <laughs> like that was designed <laughs> from the ground up. We knew, you know, this is a season where we didn't move the camera and we wanted there to be these sort of very presentational, beautiful frames where it's the characters moving in and out as opposed to the camera moving to meet them. And Amy did a great job designing the the house basically according to our shots and what we needed. So um, yeah, shout out to Amy for doing a great yeah, job. Yeah, like you've probably been in a house like this or seen a house like yeah. this and you can yeah. sort of feel it and you guys spend a lot of time looking at woodwork and- Yes, and, 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 the, and, and the specific architecture. And we felt like it was something novel of seeing you know these two queer black women in a house like this. It, it's just like, this is a thing that you see sometimes in films, but it's, it's never a couple that looks exactly like this and, and going through the things they're going through. And they talk a lot about the fact that they have made this house for themselves with the stuff they want with their art. It's great. So so shooting in COVID, I imagine sucks. Is there anything you couldn't put into the show because of COVID restrictions? Well, there's actually, and, and this is a little spoiler. I mean, wh who knows if we'll ever shoot this part, but you know, a lot of people have been asking, it's like, oh yeah, is, is he's not in this part, whatever. We actually did have other scripts where, Aziz, you know, like I shouldn't probably even say this, but there's other scripts where Aziz is the lead of, of like it's kind of a different half of the season. And we just couldn't shoot that because of COVID. So we actually wanted to put them out at the same time. And, you know, hopefully, fingers crossed, we may get to shoot it sometime in the future. But we couldn't we couldn't do the entire other half. There's of the a season. season three and there's a half. The, it's yeah, about yeah Aziz. basically there's so we'll see if we ever get to make it. But, yeah, there was a whole other section. And so we we'll couldn't shoot it because a number of reasons uh, production wise, uh, you know, the things that COVID really limits you on location, travel, number of BG, right? Number of extras, background artists. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're talking about theoretically uh, a, a half a season or whatever, or a bunch of episodes that shoot in a different country with a lot of background, with a lot of traveling, with a lot of new actors, you know, like all of those things are impediments. And so this half of the season, in addition to be something we, we loved and we really like felt like this was special and timely and relevant, it was also a lot of it was two people talking in a house right. and it was like, oh my God, this is, this is very COVID friendly. It's never easy, but this was. On so you happen to have a script that had it, two people in a house for well, most of it. Th that's what, you know, when we, when we went back to Universal Netflix to shoot it, you know, in, in the latter half of, of last year, I mean, we all remember what happened last year and in, in, in whole, like in, as, as a, as a, as a year, it was, it was a pretty messed up year, but we were like, not only is this feasible to shoot, it also happens to be a celebration of black love. That seems pretty relevant in 2020. It seems like this is the kind of show that hasn't been made and we'd like to take our swing at it. And so that was another factor that really, really excited us about these episodes. So there is no reference to COVID or a pandemic in this show. There's a reference at the very end of taking your masks off, which I don't think you intended to be a COVID reference, <laughs> but I was jarred by it. There's a shot of Lena Waithe in an office that jarred me for a second. Yep. I was like, oh yeah, that doesn't happen still. Did you guys think about whether you wanted to reference the pandemic, what it'd be like for people to watch this while the pandemic is still going on? You figure people are going to watch this years from now and this will just be separate from that time. Yeah, it was more the latter. And, and you know, I see creators' instincts to include the pandemic. It's like, look, they made movies during the Vietnam War. They referenced the Vietnam War, right? So I totally get that. And I think there's going to be a lot of great work done, you know, with the context of the pandemic there. But for us, it felt a little bit more like the latter thing you were saying. And on top of that, 
we were also unsure what the world would be like when this came out, right? Who knows how long our post was going to take? And then, you know, what, you know, when is the release date and how open is everything? And, you know, I'm in New York right now and it's sort of like, you know, masks are coming off and the CDC is starting to say it's okay if you're vaccinated. So, um, yeah, we, we definitely were like, this isn't a thing that's like, it has to be 2020. It's about the pandemic. And without a massive rewrite, we're like, oh, I think this will be a little bit more in the timeless category. Yeah, it worked. I was thinking, you know, there's a dinner scene, I guess, in the first episode, first, second episode with, with Aziz and his girlfriend and, mm -hmm. and, and Lena and Naomi. And that didn't jar me at all because now I'm used to seeing people yeah. eat together, but I am not used to seeing them in, in, in other settings. And I guess I guess I will acclimate to that eventually. <laughs> Yeah, wait, wait till you see the second half of the season, which is like a wild concert in like uh, wherever. Yeah, no, it's not going to be that. But yeah. that'll blow me away. Yeah, um, <laughs> you, you mentioned that this does look different. I was asking before we started taping. Um, the aspect ratio is different, and and I barely even know what aspect ratio means. I just wanted to make sure that that I was my TV was was showing me this correctly. Why why does it look different than other seasons of TV? Yeah, it was definitely a deliberate choice, and and we were joking, you know, before the pod. It was like season one and two. We we fought so hard to get the two three nine to one aspect ratio which is kind of what you associate with films right it, it's it's a little bit squarish it's a little yeah exactly so 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 in the past you know television was four three and then it was 16 nine and these all re refer to do kind of the shape of the picture right mm -hmm. so now with our hd tvs it's generally 16 nine but season one we wanted it to have that kind of feel of a 70s film so we asked for you know, two four one or two three nine one, which has a little bit of black bars, and we got a little bit of resistance. So like, we don't let anyone do this. Like, we didn't let David Fincher do this for House of Cards, and we're like, yeah, but we think it would be really cool. And by the way, you do all your movies two three nine one, and and so we won that battle. And then this season, it was a different feel. You know, we shot on sixteen millimeter film, and so we went to more of the square aspect ratio to evoke some of those other movies that we had seen that are you know, not in the traditional movie two, three, nine, one ratio. So it's all part of it. And by the way, it also helped us with some of the blocking and the staging and the framing of all of it, because knowing that this was the aspect ratio on set, you could often have the characters, you know, not be so far apart, be a little closer in frame. All of these things were, were things that we kept in mind as the actors were being blocked and as these was setting up shots. Yeah, it really it really has a different look and there's different ways of looking at people on screen that I mean you don't need to spend a you don't need to be a film student to appreciate it. And in fact, if you're not a film student, just leave us with this. And and you're like, these guys are clearly referencing other stuff, but I don't know what it is. What, what doesn't are the, matter. <laughs> what, but what but what are the movies and shows that people want like a bibliography for like I want to go see more stuff that looks like this? What are what's what's influencing you guys? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's some stuff and, and again, don't be other people who don't care, don't be intimidated. Just watch the show. It's just two people. It's very love. approachable. It's two don't, people talking. Yeah, don't be scared. But certainly it was it it was a it was a, a long lineage of movies, right? And so we talked about, as I mentioned, Bergman, obviously, you know, scenes from a marriage is seminal work, just about relationships in general and um, you know, how that was acted and staged. Um, there was there's a little bit of Yasujiro Ozu, of course, you know, that was early on. I think we we leaned that direction a little bit more, but even in the sense of like the the B-roll or the shots of the outside, you know, Ozu called them pillow shots, like that was, you know, we found that to be really important and 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 beautiful in the context of this this series. And, and um, how they give you a breath. Um, there, there's a movie. If you really want to get deep, there's there's a movie called Jean Diamant. Um, it's a Chantal Ackerman movie um, that is kind of a, a seminal work, but um, gave us sort of 
some of the inspiration to do these longer takes and to have people move around in the frame as opposed to the camera diving and cutting and cutting and cutting. You know, one thing we, we joked about is there's almost like an arms race in television and movies now to cut and to be choppier. And to this be feels cuttier. like you guys like putting your foot on the brake and going, we're going to move this car so slowly yeah. that it's going to kind of freak you out for a little while yeah, to and, get to and, get used to it. And what does it feel like to be in the room with these people as opposed to, oh, I'm in the room with an editor cutting every blink of an eye, right? Like every like that's how a lot of movies feel this way where it's so fast you can't even keep up. So I wouldn't say it's slow because there's a lot of plot that happens mm-hmm. and there's a lot of twists and turns and there's a lot of emotions and there's high strung performances and a tight wire walk of people getting into arguments and getting into and falling in love and falling out of love, but it we really wanted to feel and by the way if you know nothing about cameras or editing yeah. or any of that stuff it doesn't matter like i you know i showed it to my girlfriend who who you know she does know a little bit about that stuff but she was like i wasn't thinking about that stuff it's like no i was like oh my god what's gonna happen to this couple like that and yeah. then that's the goal right it's not like hey what movie you know what movies is this? but for the cinephiles out there th- those are some of the movies you could watch and, and by the way one 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 bonus you get there is that because you it's things are i'll stop using the word slow drawn out Yes. In a positive way. Intense. That that occasionally (laughs) something pops and you're like, oh, then it's extra shocking. There's a scene and I won't spoil it, but I literally went back and rewound it a couple of times just to see how you guys did it. Yeah. Um, How you lead up to it. Yeah. We we, we like to use the word hypnotic because it's like, it's, it, it, it just, you're, you're, you're leaning in. That's what we ultimately wanted is you're drawn into this world and it's like, I'm paying attention and maybe I'm not looking at my phone because something is going to happen on screen and there's attention to it, right? I mean, forget all those other movies. It's like, what about a Hitchcock movie where nothing happens for a while and then it's something happened that you need the rhythm. You need yeah. the rhythm, right? You need the rhythm. So, so this is a, a sort of relationship version of that. It is a put your phone down show. I recommend it. Uh, not that it matters, but what I recommend, you're going to watch it anyway. Uh, Alan Yang, thank you for letting me nerd out with you for a few minutes. It was fun. Uh, thanks so much, Peter. Thanks again to Alan Yang. That was a fun conversation. I really enjoyed it. Um, I really like, I like my job. I like talking to cool, smart, interesting people. I'm glad I have this job. I'm glad you guys like listening to this podcast. I'm glad that Jill and Jelani edited and produced this podcast for us. I'm glad that our sponsors let us bring this podcast to you for free. And I'm glad that there'll be a new episode of Recode Media next week. See you then. Canva presents stories to keep you up at night. It was an ordinary work day until... The Singapore presentation is at 3 a.m. The office was shocked. That's when we sleep. Maya made it less scary with Canva. (laughs) I'll just record my presentation so Singapore can watch it anytime. Record and present anytime with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.